0: turn to Esther chapter 9. Cinda was very sick this week and uh, was rushing through stuff yesterday, so there might be some typos, like the wrong chapter number. It was good in what she did for me, so I don't know what happened. All right, most of you there. Now in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar... On the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. And did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshandatha and Dalphon, and Aspatha Aspar- uh, and Poratha, and Adalia and Aridatha and Parmashtra, and Arisai and Aridai. And Zayath-Zatha, Zathra, get me too. The ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid not hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, in Susa the citadel, The Jews have killed and destroyed five hundred men and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. And now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the thirteenth day of the month of Adar, and on the fourteenth day they rested and made that, day, uh, made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the thirteenth day and on the fourteenth day "...and rested on the fifteenth day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the fourteenth day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day in which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all of the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far." obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of uh, Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday that they should make themselves that should make them days of feasting and gladness days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur—that that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan... uh, that he devised against the Jews, should return on his own head, and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and what they faced in this matter, and of what happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what had been written, and at the time appointed every year. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation and in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority, confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to the feasts and lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. May God bless the reading of his word. I'm not sure who made these verses so long. It's sort of deceptive in terms of the number of verses being compared to how long this chapter is. So let's pray. Father, we thank you. I thank you for these people in this congregation. I ask that you would reveal the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ to all of us this morning. Father, we need to be filled with the knowledge of your will. We need wisdom and understanding from the Spirit as we look at this passage. Use it to teach us to walk in a manner worthy of you that pleases you and bears fruit. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, your beloved Son, the Savior of sinners. Amen. It didn't look good. The odds were against them. It seemed like all of people's fears, or some people's fears, would be realized. I speak not of the election. I speak of Cub fans. (laughs) Who thought we're down three games to one It's happening again. We are going to lose again. The hopes that we had will be dashed yet again. And then something happened. They started to hit. They won three in a row and won the World Series. And most of you probably don't care, although there are some who care very greatly about this event. And I imagine that those people were like I was when the Red Sox finally won. I imagine that they were jumping up and down with joy. There were tears streaming down their face. And they wanted to have a party right then and there, even though it was close to 11 o'clock at night. Much later, if you were in other parts of the country. Spontaneous celebration resulting from unexpected victory. But that wasn't it. See, a couple days later, there was planned celebration in which one of the largest gatherings of people that has been recorded in modern history took place within Chicagoland as, I can't remember now, my mind just went, was it five million? five million? Five million people were reported to have shown up to rejoice in the triumph of the Cubs after 108 years of utter misery (laughs) and failure and defeat. (laughs) I tease, I tease, okay? And so we see a pattern there of victory and celebration, first spontaneous and then planned. And the reason I bring that up is because it is a reflection of the pattern we see here in Esther 9. One of unexpected victory, followed by spontaneous celebration, and then later formalized celebration. The feasts remind us of deliverances past and future. That is our big idea this morning. We start, we only have two points today. You get a break. Maybe. (laughs) But there's really two aspects to this that connect to that larger point that we have. And the first is that Jesus will defend his people and destroy his enemies. This rather long passage begins with the dreadful day that Haman had set for the destruction of the Jews. It had arrived, even though Haman was not alive to see it, having already been dispatched by the king's men. But here we are, fast forward, nine months to that day. And the day that Haman saw, when he imagined this, was all of the Jews being utterly destroyed, but as the text says, the tables were turned. Those who planned to have mastery over God's people ended up being mastered, so to speak, by God's people. This was surprising because this was Persia. This was not Jerusalem. And in Persia, they were a minority group that was dispersed, throughout the whole land. A rather small minority group, not a large minority group. But they were also a rather despised minority group throughout the country, throughout the empire. And so uh, if we know anything about the Persians, we know that they're rather ruthless. And so there's something that connects with what we read from Isaiah 25 about the, the, uh, the threats of the ruthless people coming to naught. How did this happen? Well, from the text we see that, first of all, the Jews gathered in their cities. In other words, they expressed solidarity. They did not see this as every man for himself. But they joined together to protect one another, to be a strong force within their local community, to stand against those who sought to destroy them. They did not roam the city looking for people. They were not on the offensive. They were on the defensive through this day that had been appointed. And so what we see is, the results of their self-defense not their aggression but their defense against the aggression of others who hated them that was given expression by haman the enemy of the jews and his edict so it's not a start not a fight they started but apparently it was one that they finished Secondly, we see that fear of them had fallen on all the peoples. And so some were intimidated, so to speak, and because of this fear to not even engage God's people, while others may have continued on in their engagement, but uh, were fighting out of fear, not out of triumph, a sense of triumph. And what was the source of this fear that fell upon them? It seems to be connected to the idea because we have the for, the logical connector there, for Mordecai was great. Mordecai, who had been elevated by Xerxes to the position of uh, basically prime minister and therefore the second most powerful man within the Persian kingdom, which of course was the most powerful kingdom on earth at that point in time. His name had grown, his reputation had grown with his rise to power, and many officials feared retribution if they assisted the enemies of Mordecai and his people. And so we see something similar to what we find in Exodus 11. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. We see it even earlier in the life of Joseph, who went from being a man who was in prison, falsely accused, to now being elevated to the position of second most powerful in Egypt, and people feared him. His name was made great. His reputation was enhanced. And all of these are actually reflections or in fulfillments of the great promise that God gave to Abraham that I will make your name great. And so these individuals, because they're related to Abraham and are placed in positions of power, had been given great names so that they might do great good for God's people. That's a lot of what is going on here. How is it that these officials help the Jews? It doesn't say in the text. But what, what most likely how they helped them was to provide them with weapons. Remember, this is Persia. There's no Second Amendment, shall we say. Okay. Most governments, for fear of rebellion, did not permit the average citizen to have swords or spears. You could probably have weapons to hunt with, But they were a little careful with these things. So now you have these Jews who want to protect themselves, and the officials came alongside and said, well, you know, it's not quite, you know, the uh, inner city drug uh, gun dealer opening the trunk of his car and saying, pick out what you want and slip me the money. But something like that. They're provided these resources that they didn't have ordinary access to so that they could defend themselves. As we look at this conflict in the first half of this chapter, we see. I want, us, I want us to notice two things about it. And the first thing is, I want us to see its utter completeness. It reflects the wordings of the edict, not completely, okay? It's not. But as we see, killing and destroying them. Let's get out of our minds, sort of. Um, like West Side Story. I don't know why I thought of West Side Story, but I saw quotes from West Side Story the other day, and I don't like West Side Story to begin with, but, I mean, a musical about gang fights. Wasn't that saying a little strange to you? But, uh, yeah, this is not like a gang fight where you get some bruises and maybe you get a couple of little cuts and you go home and everything is all right. Uh, This is more Braveheart, happened to be on last night, so I watched a battle. This is fight to the death, blood, and destruction. Those people were coming for them, and they were not simply going to repulse them. They needed to eliminate them, because the enemy wouldn't stop. This is similar to a community standing up, Against the forces of ISIS when they show up to town. But they've been armed and they're ready. And while they may not be trained trained soldiers, they defend the people they love to the death. And that's what we see here. It's not pleasant, it's not pretty, it's thoroughgoing and it's complete. It's a reflection of what we see in other places like, say, Joshua 23. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations, and as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. And it was similar in this day here in Persia. No one could stand before God's people that day. It's also complete in this. While Esther... And Xerxes are waiting for the election results, I mean the, uh, the tallies of what happens. That's sort of what it's like. They're, they're nervous. They're not sure what's going to happen here. The first results come in for the city of Susa, and 500 of uh, the enemies of the Jews have been killed. And it's odd because Xerxes asks her, what more do you want? And this time, he doesn't place a limit on it. He just says, what more do you want? And she says two things. Because he asked, what do you want and what's your request? A second day in Susa to finish the work that began. Because think about that. What would happen in Tucson if 500 people were killed today? Wouldn't that just be amongst some of the worst news you've ever heard? Wouldn't you be floored, flabbergasted, devastated? But you know that there are more who hate you. And so it's extended a day so that the work of putting God's, the enemies of God's people to death would continue. The second thing she asks for, the, the ten sons of Haman have already been killed, but she says, impale them with their, their father on the pole. Let them be cursed and let them be a deterrent so that people can see throughout the city because remember, it's 75 feet high, it's high, high, ugh, tall, high, I can't make them one word, can't do that. Visible throughout almost the entire city. So everyone will know, don't mess with God's people, for this could happen to you. Complete. I'm reminded of Second um, Kings 13 for a similar kind of experience. Elisha the prophet, the, uh, the one who succeeded Elijah, is dying. And the king of Israel comes to him, and they're going to have a showdown with Syria. And so Elisha kind of consoles the king and, and you know, has him do some symbolic action by firing an arrow, and you're going to score a victory against Syria. But then he says this, very, this thing that's very strange to us, and he says, take the arrows and pound them into the ground. Hit them at the ground with them. And so the king, you know, one, two, three times. And Elisha goes, You should have done it five or six times. Because now you're only going to gain victory over them three times. If you had done it five or six times, you would have thoroughly defeated them, and they would no longer be a thorn in your side. And so this is Esther basically saying, I want them to be thoroughly defeated so they no longer are a thorn in our side. And so the big picture of this, stepping back from the events taking place in Persia, take back a little bit, is that they did what King Saul had failed to do. Because this reminds us again that Haman was an Agagite, And Saul was supposed to slaughter them, as it says in 1 Samuel 15, and he was not to take any plunder. And what Saul did was that he let some live, like Agag, and he took plunder. And so these people fulfill the word of the Lord, are thorough with the battle, and we see a limit here in that they did not take the plunder. We see their restraint. Not only their restraint in laying no hands on the plunder, but restraint with regard to women or children. There's no mention of women or children being killed here. And so all of the children of Haman had to have been adults, his sons. And so we see that the finishing of what was begun in 1 Samuel 15, but there's an even bigger picture that we've talked about before, and we see here that the promised seed was protected from this great threat to the salvation, not just of the Jews, but also of the nations. Because if the seed of Abraham is wiped out, and then there is no blessing that comes to the nations. And so God protects His people not just for their good, but also for the good of the nations by his great love and mercy. And so we should recognize that this deliverance points us to the ultimate and final deliverance that occurs when Jesus returns for his afflicted people. I want you to kind of think of it this way. Many of us have either read or heard of the Narnia Chronicles, right? Okay? Okay. What's the last book called? The Last Battle. It's called The Last Battle because there are a number of battles preceding it. And in each of those battles, the friends of Aslan triumph over their enemies because of the work of Aslan, the lion, a picture of Christ. And so it is in this life, not just the imagination of C.S. Lewis. There are many battles between God's enemies and God's people, and God continues to preserve his people, but it's all going to come at, to a head on the great final day. And for those of you who are in community group, if you're in Second Thessalonians, you see this in chapters 1 and 2 in particular. For instance, chapter 1, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And so he recognizes, Paul recognizes that the Thessalonian church, just like Paul himself, was persecuted and was afflicted, and he's saying God is just, and God will afflict those who afflict you. And he continues, And to grant relief to you that are afflicted as well as to us when is this going to happen? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so part of what Paul is clear about is similar to what Esther is clear about. The people who were killed were those who hated the Jews. The people who were killed were those who tried to kill the Jews. And here in Thessalonians, the vengeance is upon those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel. We see in second, in chapter two of second Thessalonians as well in verse eight, and when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. And so when Jesus returns, it's not just the end of human enemies. It's also going to be an end of the great enemy, Satan who will be destroyed and cast into the lake of fire with the beasts and everyone else who has stood against God and his people. And so we recognize, again, that the various times and places the church has been persecuted, is currently persecuted, and will be persecuted, and we wait for that day when Jesus comes to settle the scores, so to speak. But we see that Jesus does not send drones. But rather we see this glimpse from Revelation 19 of Jesus and fulfillment of what we see in Isaiah as Yahweh treads out the winepress of God. Jesus is the one who treads out the winepress of God and His garments are covered as a result. It is not a pretty picture. It's a disturbing truth but we cannot domesticate Jesus. Jesus does not bring collateral damage. There are no civilian casualties. There is no injustice in how He brings this about. But it will be fully just. And so Esther reminds us of the greater story in which Jesus defeats all of his enemies on the great last day. And that is meant to comfort us. So I said there were two points. I didn't tell you how long they were. (laughs) Second point. (laughs) Feasts point us to the wedding feast of the Lamb. You see, the second half of this chapter is caught up in the fact that God had granted relief and rest from their enemies. And as a result, it says, they made that a day of feasting and gladness. And this is not the first time God had granted relief. We see similar things in Joshua 21, first, uh, sorry, 2 Samuel 7, God granting rest from enemies on every side, and then there's times that result with feasting and rejoicing. So deliverance brings us into a time of feasting, and celebration. And initially, it's spontaneous, like all of those Chicago fans scattered throughout the country and indeed pro- possibly even the world. Okay? Spontaneous joy that erupts because they have persevered and have conquered. But then we see that this feast or festival then becomes formalized for days to come through both Mordecai and Esther. That's parallel, so to speak, the parade where the government officials in in Chicago said, Friday is the day. It was Friday, right? Okay, I wasn't sure if it was Saturday or Friday. And everyone showed up and everyone danced and... Eat bratwurst and drank beer and who knows what. I wasn't there, but they had a great time celebrating. And Paul, uh, sorry, not Paul, uh, the author of Esther r- reminds us. Uh, you know, Mordecai's words were for those who were near and those who were far. And this could be a, a way um, some commentators think of of um, slyly referring to God through the promises like Isaiah 57. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace, to the far and the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. A promise which seems to also be picked up in Ephesians chapter 2 where peace comes to those who were near and those who were far away as they're brought into one new humanity in Christ Jesus. Okay. And so as we as we consider this book, we recognize that this book begins with a queen being deposed at a feast. But it ends with her replacement being established. She's no longer neglected, so to speak, but we see that she's present for all of this. The book begins with a drunken feast, but it ends with feasts of thanksgiving by the Jews, not the ungodly. And so a very different kind of feast is taking place. This new feast that is instituted, this festival, was called Purim, or Lot's, And it's an ironic reference to Haman because he cast lots to discern the day in which it would happen and it gave God's people plenty of time to lament and to pray and for God to raise up Mordecai, remove Haman and issue a new edict to balance it out. So as Jews celebrated Uh, Purim, they basically uh, would do two days. The first day would be one of fasting and lamenting. They would, in other words, remember the threat that was posed by Haman in his edict. They reckoned with the threat, with the danger of what's going on, not just to the Jews, but also to the seed. In other words, they provided a context for the celebration to follow. Okay? Just like we see with Passover. They were supposed to tell their children why they were celebrating Passover. And so that begins with Exodus 1 and the enslavement of the Jews in the land of Egypt. And their del- and their deliverance through the ten plagues and the mighty hand of God. And so they were to do this to remember. Just like most, some of us anyway, Well, why Thanksgiving? And we remember the pilgrims and how they almost died because they came to a new world and almost froze to death and didn't have food. And so they're thankful that God preserved them through the means of the friends they made who already lived there. Context. In the evening, those communities would then read Esther to remember God's great deliverance. And so the book of Esther is an important one in the life of the Jewish people. It was so important that in Nazi Germany, Esther was banned. If you had a copy of the book in a concentration camp, you would be shot on sight. And so there were many Jews who had memorized the book of Esther, and they would tell one another the story of Esther. God's going to deal with Germany. God's going to deal with Germany. The second day was one of feasting and rejoicing. Kids would perform plays that reenacted the events and, you know, one poor unlucky soul got to be Haman, I guess. Um <laughs> You know we do do a similar thing with school plays for Christmas and everything else. Well that's what that's what they do. There's the singing of songs, there's the making of jokes, there's the giving of gifts that take place. In some ways it does sound a bit like Christmas and is even the time of year that we tend to think of for Christmas. We see that they sent gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. And so this celebration is not one of isolation within families, but is intended to also be throughout the community. And so they would take note of who within the community needed help, and they would provide help for them on this great day. That part of their rejoicing was generosity to other people who needed it. So, This festival, to sum sum that idea up, recalled past deliverances even as they anticipated future deliverances because there would be future threats. And that just as God had come through then, there was the anticipation that is cultivated that God will come through again in ways we cannot predict or understand, just like God's mysterious way of working in Esther. No one predicted any of that, or would understand any of it. As we come to the table each week, communion also recalls Christ's work for our salvation, our deliverance past, our spiritual deliverance, but it also anticipates... His eventual return and our physical deliverance from our enemies, real and spiritual. What's interesting to me, and maybe I should take an exception to this, is that the Directory of Worship speaks of orderly and gravely sitting during communion. As we consider our sin, that would be appropriate. But communion is also called Eucharisto. Good grace. It's meant to be an expression of joy. Because Christ has won. And so that's why I take exception to the gravely sitting. We should be joyfully sitting. Okay, maybe some should dance now. <laughs> but we should be joyful as we celebrate this table because it reminds us that those who are in Christ are now no longer condemned and that those who are in Christ have a great future ahead of them and that one day, all of their enemies, who are Christ's enemies, will be overcome. His return culminates, as we saw from Revelation 19, in the great wedding feast of the Lamb. And we see a similar thing in Isaiah 25, with his description of you know, the Lord's going to, on this mountain, the Lord will prepare a feast, and it's a great feast, because it's like, it talks about steaks, ugly steaks, people. Choice wines, the best thing you could drink, not the cheap stuff like what Jesus provided at his miracle in Cana. The good stuff. And so this, this is a picture of a great feast that unfolds in Isaiah 25 is picked up in the wedding feast of the Lamb in Revelation 19. where well, we just had one of those feasts but it'll be better than Molinitos, right? It'll be greater than that. And your pastor will be able to dance. It's those of you who mocked me. Okay? So we see, in, both in Revelation and Isaiah, these pictures of grace. And particularly in, in Isaiah 25, because the food and the wine are freely provided. They're received without money. They're received without price, just as we see as well in Isaiah 55. And so this is a victory that we don't earn. It's a victory that's been earned for us through Jesus Christ, who triumphed, as it says in Colossians, over the powers and principalities with his death upon the cross, consummated then, or rather, inaugurated then and brought to consummation on his great return. And so, brothers and sisters, the the recent events in Chicago, a city that up until that point in recent history had been marked mostly by violence, We saw a victory and a celebration. And so these are both common in biblical and common history. God works in history and his people celebrate. Between these deliverances, it's easy for people to become complacent or even worse, Fearful. But biblical feasting reminds us of the ever-present threat that exists because of the great enemy of God and of those who hate Christ. But it also reminds us of a faithful God who is far greater than the great enemy. This faithful God who has continually delivered His people and will ultimately end the conflict once and for all. And so keep this in mind as we celebrate communion, not just today, but bring this back to mind each time we come to this table. Keep this in mind as we celebrate Thanksgiving in a couple of weeks. And and may God use that to turn your personal mourning into dancing. Take your grieving and transform it into rejoicing. let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to uh, not just remember the gospel, but respond to the gospel. Not simply in believing, but also in that change that happens because now we have hope. Now we have cause for rejoicing and joy and so may there be a, uh, an appropriate biblical response when we do trust that our sorrow will be laid down and our hopeful joy be picked up so that we indeed can be a countercultural community in a world filled with shallow joys and great big fears. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.